Guess what? What? You're an author. Oh, my God. You're right. You wrote a book. I did write a book. And it's called Stop Blaming Mothers and Ignoring Fathers, How to Transform the Way We Keep Children Safe from Domestic Violence. Right. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon. Kindle. It's softcover. It's hardcover. Yeah. And it's a book that lays out six myths that really dive into these gaps in the field that the safety of the models is meant to fix or transform. Mm-hmm. It talks about gender double standards. It has interviews with practitioners and, and survivors. survivors and practical things you can do. But it really kind of is it's good for anybody who knows the model or is new to the model. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It only took two and a half years to do. Okay. Well, go get the book on Amazon.com. And we're back. And we're back. You are listening to Partner with a Survivor, and I am David Mandel, Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, and I'm the e-learning and communications manager. Soon to have a new title. Okay. Coming soon. Coming soon. Coming soon. And and we are back for one of our old school podcasts that's just a conversation between ourselves. and Sitting on the couch with Tiberius the dog. Yes, in our new offices. And um, today's conversation is about intersections of domestic violence mental health and addiction mm-hmm. but i want to just acknowledge that that you're joining us so we're recording from uh, uh settled land mm-hmm. you know of the tungsis people uh in the north america part of the larger algonquin mm-hmm. uh, nation and just part of us acknowledging the history of colonization and settlement and Structural racism mm-hmm. in the United States and other yeah. places. So just want to start that way. And we start a lot of our public meetings that way now, even though it's not a tradition in the United States to do that, mm-hmm. an acknowledgement of country, it feels important to do that. Well, it's an important conversation to have that intersections and intersectionalities, we won't be talking about intersectionalities, but that you know, structural racism and colonization and forced separation of families and enforced poverty has really created the reality of addiction and mental health disorders. Um, you know, removing people from their familial contexts and from their understanding of themselves and their families is a really violent act. Well, and you, you, we, we just walked into one of our, our themes, you know, mm-hmm. major themes today, which is how do you, um, not decontextualize addiction and mental health issues from, from all forms of oppression? Right. And, uh, how do you not make it a individualized psychopathology, mm. uh, which, which rebounds against that, that person who is made genuinely having addiction, trauma issues. Right. But, but that their experience can't be disconnected for one of structural racism or colonization. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, the, the mainstream mental health and addiction movements or fields or disciplines often do that. And well, so you, you are a, a, a licensed professional counselor. So you've been trained as a mental health practitioner um, in very Western paradigms and, you know, we know that those Western paradigms were created by white men <laughs> in a white context. Few white women. A few white women. Few white women. But very much the mental health community does need to face that their theories of uh, addiction and mental health come out of the very people who were trying to argue that those who were socially aberrant, who didn't fit into the social norms, who displayed trauma reactions. Um, and, and we're really talking about, we're talking about ethnic people. You know, Young was not a good guy. He was a Nazi. And he argued for the Nazis that they would be able to take children away from their families and institutionalize them, you know? And the whole notion of the collective unconscious that he had was stolen from 
from indigenous people. That was an indigenous so we, notion. We we jumped right into it. So let me <laughs> let me pull the lens back a little bit as we often do. Oh, Ruth's gonna this, go big this, fast. This is a no. This is good. <laughs> let me let me talk about Freud now. No, right? You know, and, but it's it's. Um, let me just kind of frame this larger conversation and and uh, and talk about the concept of intersections as as we talk about it at the Safe and Together Institute and. Mm-hmm. And then kind of dive back in. But yes, you got a little preview and taste of where we, where we're going. But, um, you know, for me, um, when I created the Safe and Together model in the critical components, there was a place for things that weren't causal, mm-hmm. but were essential or really important. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them was, was culture. So from the beginning, that was there. Um, socioeconomic status mm-hmm. and, um, and then things like addiction and mental health issues. And it was really important for me for them to be included from the beginning, but not be put into that box of being causal to the perpetration of domestic violence, because oftentimes people lay off domestic violence on culture. And again, racism is often really critical mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. um, or addiction or mental health issues. And, and so that was the starting point in the safety of the model for, for intersections. But as time evolved, um, the thinking around it evolved to where the term intersections became used because, um, of the gap or the lack in terms like co-occurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the practice that was often very siloed. So you think about the problem being, this, the languaging, like co-occurrence, sort of implies that these things are, are that that they're happening at the same time, mm-hmm. but they don't tell you anything about the relationship <clears throat> between the two things. Right. And 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 then the siloing of services or the siloing of in in discussions of cases where it's just like, oh, this family has a history of mental health, addiction, and domestic violence, and, and I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many times I, I read that in a case file. Mm-hmm. And it became clear to me that that we weren't having this this conversation about how these things connected, and in that lack of conversation, we were not seeing the perpetrator's role, the person choosing violence's role in impacting the rest of the family's issues, like mental health, their kids' behavioral health issues, their partner's or their addiction, partner's addiction, right? Yeah, and that we weren't having sophisticated, accurate conversations about how that person who's choosing violence own course of control related to their addiction. We're having simplistic conversations, which were, well, um, if they're an addict and they're, and they're, they're violent, well, let's treat their addiction and we'll assume that their, their abuse will go away. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it really became clear that, that we needed a much more nuanced and, framing of the issue of assessment and engagement and thinking about it because if we didn't do that then also what would happen is survivors issues would get decontextualized from the perpetrators violence right. and control so that's the inception of the concept of interse- intersections right that's why we, we end up talking about intersections and intersectionalities to talk about both that and then the issue of structural racism and other forms of oppression and vulnerabilities that are structural in society like gender and race and and, and class so anyway, so that's just the kind of the first level of background on on the term intersections. Mm-hmm. So so really, it, it became about really understanding lots of things, and it's continued to evolve. And we can talk about all those things, but you know, it it, it encompasses we we when we train, it encompasses these three broad categories. Because again, I wanted to to center first perpetrators patterns mm-hmm. and would often find myself when I was doing consultations with child safety workers in the U S reminding them that the person that they were seeing in terms of the survivor after a few years of abuse may not have been the person that this person was mm-hmm. when the abuse started. And they would say, well, she's got mental health issues and she's got addiction issues. And I'd, I'd explore them and say, well, what was the impact of the perpetrator's behavior on mm-hmm. her well-being and her mental health and her addiction? They didn't have a framework for that. So I started creating a framework where it said, okay, did he cause her mental health issues? Right. 
Did he cause her addiction issues? Did he cause her addiction issues? Did she not have them before? We we have to have a model where we can language and say, this person's anxiety or this person's depression, right? Because we're often talking about anxiety, depression from a mental health point of view or or post or, or other trauma symptoms, you know, that that those things would be caused. They didn't exist before. We have to have a model, a way of sort of saying that and looking for that. I know that the way that, that you break it down is, did the perpetration cause, did it impede, and did it exacerbate? Right. Like, those are the three measures. Yeah. Uh, but having worked heavily within the medical community, I know that diagnosticians are really hesitant to draw causal links so given that, particularly within the mental health community, you know, how many mental health professionals would be willing to look at the pattern of behaviors of a perpetrator and the and the co you know, the responses of right. the of the of the survivor and say, This seems to be causal to this person's mental health issues. I, I think when we, we have the framework we can we can we can say what we know. Mm-hmm. And my experience is if you say things like Prior to this relationship and the abuse beginning, this person had no symptoms or issues with right. depression, you anxiety. You can lay out the actual behavior. You can lay out right. side by side the, the, the timeline and, mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. and and within the context of this, these symptoms have arose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once you put the behaviors in, and and you can say, and these are not uncommon results. Results of this. Yep. So you can you may not feel comfortable saying this caused that right. in a formal piece of documentation, mm-hmm. but you can basically walk people through it. Through it, and and most people, unless they have some particular resistance to getting it, will get it. And we've seen that with other things, like that. I think a lot of times one of the one of the I think the values of the, the making the perpetrator's pattern of behavior visible mm-hmm. in documentation assessments versus just referencing oh there's an issue of domestic violence is that it makes it easier for somebody unacquainted with the case or the dynamic to see the value of the conclusions or or make sense of the issues that are being presented. Mm-hmm. And so we've had cases where things like cessation of breastfeeding was described in result to assault that happened around somebody's the, the child being breastfed at the time the assault happened. Mm-hmm. And so here's the perpetrator choosing as a parent, as a parent to assault the mother and, and the child in essence while she's breastfeeding. And so, uh, normal, normal, normal breastfeeding assault while breastfeeding next day, the breastfeeding stops. Right. You, we presented those facts were presented, I think to a judge and the judge understood that the, the assault actually interfered with the breastfeeding. And that was, that was an endangerment to the child. That's right. right? But, but really specifically brought it down to the breastfeeding. Right. And I think that's, that's sort of, um, you know, not an unusual circumstance. So I think you're right that people may be reticent to say cause. Right. But I think that once you kind of lay out the facts, so to speak, many people get it. Mm-hmm. And understand what they're seeing, mm-hmm. because it also combats the sense of wanting to pathologize survivors. You know, I think we're fighting so much gender bias, right? That that anything we can do to counteract that by making the perpetrator's pattern visible is going to help. Because I think there's really, you know, because of cultural um, stereotypes about women, you know, and 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 that are very violent. Women are crazy women are emotionally unstable mm-hmm. and then you add in layers of racism are on top of that mm-hmm. you know that 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 sort of you know can can make that around you know black and brown women in the united states mm-hmm. or indigenous women you know and and then and so there's a there's sort of a bias in that direction well, already you, yeah it's funny because we speak about these biases disconnected from the entities that have these biases. And those biases are baked in to child protection and social work in ways that we actually really need to face because social work, again, has a framework, a very Western framework, which really deals with controlling the family unit, their expression and culture, that that family has to be culturally appropriate to 
the Western cultured standards. Do you understand right. what I'm saying? Well, it's, it's, you know, you know, and I think it's 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 a willingness to engage. And I'm now I'm going to take a take a turn and and then come back. But it, you'll appreciate this, I think, which is sort of I think that you know, and I'm speaking to any of my peers who are in mental health or addiction, and say we have to be willing to to acknowledge our blind spots and the complexity. And the first thing that comes to mind, you you brought up Carl Jung, right? You mm-hmm. know, uh, and I really have been admirer of a lot of stuff around collective consciousness and sort mm-hmm. of deep mm-hmm. psychology, and um, have seen the value of that kind of work in, mm-hmm. in for healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm about to bring up Margaret Sanger, <laughs> which has a particular resonance for for you, but but you know that she's considered in the United States the the mother of the modern birth control movement, right? right? right. But she was a, a eugenicist. And a racist. And a racist. Yeah, and she was a Nazi collaborator. That's right. And Planned yeah. Parenthood has had to acknowledge that recently right, in the right. United States. And and so I think that's an example coming out of the medical, you know, kind of public health. Right. You know, field, family planning field where you have to say, okay, that's a reality. And mm-hmm. we have to be willing to acknowledge it and say, okay, that's, you know, part of she was part of an oppressive structure. Right. You know, her intent was this actually, but it opened the doorway to things that, that, that are also positive mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. women's freedom and mm-hmm. control over their bodies. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think the same thing is true in mental health, you know, and addiction that we have to have that, that ability to, to see the complexity. And, and, and I think, you know, going back to the, that framework that you mentioned, you're right that we, we have this, you know, we have to have this concept of did the perpetrator cause these, whether it's the adult or child survivor, you know, the kids' behaviors. And I've watched mm-hmm. cases where um, what's happening to the kids is blamed on prior history or other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe somebody does have prior issues, but we have to have the language of did it make this worse? Right. And from a parenting point of view, if we're holding a parent accountable, that if a parent knows a child has an issue and then engages in behaviors that exacerbates those right. those those issues, right. are they engaging good parenting or not? We'll be back after a quick break. Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information, and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a safe and together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. Yeah, this really makes me think of the vulnerabilities of neurodivergent kids who are truly vulnerable, like in ways that just break my heart, um, to domestic violence perpetration and are often targeted by it um, because of their challenges and their needs. Um, And I don't have any doubt in my mind, having witnessed so much violence and witnessed violence towards children that were neurodivergent, that it is causal. It does solidify uh, mental health and uh, anxiety disorders in those children. You can't live in a world where you 
first of all, the world is difficult to understand as a neurodivergent person because everybody else is behaving in ways that don't always make sense, you know, but then to add on top of that, the, the, the violence and the harm, um, for making a mistake or doing something different, you just create this, this huge wall of anxiety in those children and they're, they're terrified the, the rest of their lives. And, and, you know, I've talked to, to neurodivergent survivors about this. So we really do have to start to see the choices of perpetrators, not just towards their, the adult survivor, but what are they solidifying in those children? What type of um, mental health disorders are they creating in those children? Um, and I think it becomes really, really clear the direct line of coercive control and domestic violence to mental health challenges more so when you look at children, because many professionals are willing to look at adult survivors and say, well, we don't know what their childhoods were like. We don't know, you know, X, Y, Z, but very, very few people are looking at children and pinning their ADHD, right. their anxiety disorders, whatever they've been diagnosed with and looking at the family status and saying, well, there's, there's domestic violence or coercive control in this home. This child is, is living in high anxiety all the time. There's no way right. for their body to not right. respond to that. And this is where I, I can start weaving in why I think in many ways the, the traditional mental health, and again, social work's a little bit different depending on how it's practiced. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to speak broadly because I think there's still places in the world where social work is practiced as a social endeavor and not a mental health endeavor. Right. But I think the mental health profession has really made inroads into a profession that was really meant to be about social conditions. Mm, social conditioning. And social conditioning. And so <laughs> it was meant to be, you know, that was really about social environment and about, you know, and, and still you have many social work schools who are teaching about policy, who are teaching obviously about group work. They're teaching about case management. I mean, they're teaching, but a lot of it starts skewing when it gets down to practice mm -hmm. into kind of the kind of case management there people get pushed into these systems mm -hmm. that focus on service delivery. Mm. Very much. A lot of systems are focused on service delivery, not about ameliorating conditions. And so the, the, the I think there's a lot of gravity, a gravitational pull of the, the idea of a diagnosis and treatment. And, and, and I think it's a colleague, you know, who says it's really emanated out of the United States and it's yeah. one of the things we've exported. Right. Um, I don't know, you know, that was his opinion and, um, you know, um, and, um, but, but when you start thinking about this, what you just said that we cannot take a, um, let's only look at symptoms, diagnosis. Let's, let's only look at what's happening inside the clinical four walls of the clinical right, space. Right kind of you, we need to have, so you have what you described neurodivergent children, you know, and you have to say, okay, not only is there increased anxiety and, 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 and abuse and, and name that, but you have to say, okay, but maybe they had a great support system in this location mm -hmm. and the abuse disconnected that kid from that support network. Right. You know, and force them to change schools or, or push them into refuge for a period of time. And mm -hmm. that exacerbated their symptoms and made it harder to manage what was going on. And, and so, so that we, we, we do a disservice to the experience of adult child survivors when we take this very narrow mental health view of, of the connection between domestic violence and, 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 and harm, mm -hmm. you know, and I think a lot of the wonderful work done in the, in, in around trauma and the, and, and the idea of systems becoming trauma informed, unfortunately for some people who have taken that in a very simplistic reductionist way, right, right, you know, means that we, again, we're decontextualizing. So let's, let's, let's pause for a second. Okay. Cause I want to talk to everybody about reductionism. This is when you say, I only work on hearts or I only work on lungs and I don't understand all the systems that interact with that and infect it, like affect the, the, the ability of that particular organ to do its job. This is so in the mental health community as well, sort of by the medical construct that you have an individual inside your office 
that you are then going to diagnose within the context of that office, in the context of the conversations you have, disconnected from from the the reality of the environment around that human being that's being created and supported by most messaging that they hear. And I always want to bring practitioners back to that reality of the environment around those survivors. Because what happens, particularly if you diagnose a person who is being abused with a mental health disorder, is materially that diagnosis then is used in certain contexts, either for therapeutic reasons or as evidence in court. And now you have pressurized that survivor, all of the problems that were created and the, and the influences that have gone into creating that pressurized atmosphere for that human being are completely stripped away and all we're looking at is this, that single human being. And we're saying, what's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Let's give you some medication. But we've, we've stripped them right. of any context right. of their environment. And it's very much coming from a reductionist at medical attitude. Right. We need a more holistic way of looking at people. Right. You, you, the person becomes their, their symptom and their diagnosis. And, and, and I think... Again, speaking to my my mental health and addiction colleagues, that you didn't set up the system. We didn't set up the system that reduces it, <clears throat> right. but we operate in it, and we I think we have responsibility to understand it and, and try to change it. And you know, we're looking at uh, I'm going to do the best job. I'm a really excellent clinician. I'm really e- excellent diagnostician. I, I develop good rapport with my clients. I care about them. Mm-hmm. I want them to heal. I want them to get better. That's those are amazing skills and a real gift to any client. And we have to think about, for instance, you know, what happens with that diagnosis right. and information? How does it impact things like family court decision making right. and child protection decision making? Are we operating in, in a, a pathology or deficit laden system, again, to identify and to, to support and to fix or to, to heal? But, but do we identify regularly parenting strengths or things that somebody's doing right? Um, uh, and, and therefore, because if we don't, then those things don't get fed into these systems that are right. looking for that information, you know. So, again, the um, it's not enough to say, well, somebody's showing up and complying or participating and they're getting something out of the counseling. It it It's sort of, it's still, that's a still uh, in a dialogue with those the systems around deficits. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to really acknowledge that that a lot of this Western framework is very deficit driven mm-hmm. not very holistic very siloed very solid very reductionistic and that that and that it, it it for domestic violence survivors who who could be also dealing with structural racism mm-hmm. enforced poverty enforced poverty right. who may be scared of systems distrustful of systems right you know we have to really recognize the history of like you said ruth earlier about mental health and research and medical fields being used against yes. you know black and black and brown indigenous, indigenous people, people. Yeah. so there's a lack of trust there, there for good reason right for good reason <laughs> you know and so just that that or that people don't under the practitioners who are treating them don't understand the cultural context mm-hmm. and so it's not it's not as meaningful for them or, or successful with those clients and then but then all those things then get used in these other settings Mm-hmm. You know, your your compliance and success in the mental health field will matter whether you keep your kids or not. So people need to understand that they're part of this this larger process and it's it's understanding that and and understanding that the domestic violence perpetrator may be trying to manipulate all those things mm-hmm. and interfere with, for instance, somebody getting to their mental health appointments. Right. Or getting to their addiction. Or getting to addiction, addiction, you know, and, right. and I've dealt with multiple cases where the perpetrator's um, coercion, threats. He shows up at her treatment program. He calls the police on her she's in a treatment well, program. Well, there's even you more. Know. There's even more insanity in the system than that. In many rural areas, survivors are mandated to the same addiction programs as their perpetrator, right? By the same judge, right? Usually at the same time, right? And so, what do you think is going to happen, right? Come on, people. Right. I mean, this is this is kind of like. 
I, you know, where I, I start to spin out in my head as a survivor and I think, who came up with this? This is ridiculous. Who, well, who thought this, this is, was a good idea? This is why being <laughs> trauma informed or, or being, you know, having a good, you know, addiction program, you know, a lot, and some systems have drug courts and specialized courts for, for drug offenses. Um, but I don't think it's enough. And I think that when we look at addiction programs, for instance, or mental health programs, and we know we've got a survivor, adult, or we have kids coming to the program, that part of that mental health or addiction assessment must, and I don't say that a lot. You don't hear me say like any, must like, a lot, yeah. but must include a component of assessing the current situation or a course of control. Mm-hmm. And is there anybody out there who has the willingness and ability to impede right. either somebody getting physically to the appointments mm-hmm. or is actively trying to sabotage their recovery or their mental health or behavioral health. So I want to say this again, because it, it's like, it's so, it's well, so important. You know, just like, just like this is, this is another issue, but it's, it's similar. Just like, you know, we've seen judges mandate the perpetrator to be the supervised visitor, uh, to, to, to be the person who supervises the visitation of the survivor and the child, and then that survivor gets abused during that period of time. Um, you know, there's similar things that happen, particularly when the perpetrator is perceived as not having an addiction, not having a mental health disorder because they're very good in their course of control. Um, and then they become the arbitrators of that person's mental health. You're going to control what you're going to control control the medication. medication. Yes. You're going to, you're going to make sure that she doesn't take too much. You know, you can make, um, you know, statements about her mental health without any, about her compliance, without her training, without any, without any training. You know, there's how many times have we seen cases where, the allegation of mental health issues sticks and the only source of it or the original source of it is the perpetrator oh, making a statement. I'm to... going to, I'm going to make an example and, yes. and it's going to be a pop culture example. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Britney Spears. Right. Britney Spears. That whole thing, as you read the, the whole history of it and how her, her father has been able to control her life and her money and her ability to have contact with her children is absolutely indicative of how the system supports perpetrators and demonizes women who have mental health or addiction problems because of that control and that perpetration. And then hands that perpetrator all the power and control. So so this is, again, if you're seeing somebody, if you're listening to this and you're seeing somebody who who, uh, you know is a domestic violence survivor, adult or child, uh, and it's not based on whether they're living with that person who perpetrated it or not, because the, the control may be going on post-separation. Right. You need to be assessing and asking questions. You know, is there anybody getting in the way of you coming here? Does, is there anybody in your life that um, tries to undercut your success in, in, in recovery? You know, mm-hmm. is there anybody interfering with your ability to get your child to counseling or or you know, disrupting your routine of medication with your child, if that's what's recommended. Right. Really basic. And I would almost say so common that it should be universal in any kind of treatment plan develop, development because Now let's talk about that. Let's talk yeah. about impeding a person's ability to get assistance. And I, and I want to really clearly state that a lot of people are going to go directly to physical impeding, directly to threats of violence. Well, you have to think about other things as well. Has that perpetrator told a story, particularly to their children, that counseling is stupid? Right. That mental health professionals are stupid. Right. And created an adversarial, like, right. connection between healing mental health and those children being able to access that. Because perpetrators do that. They demonize, they demonize anything that would start that healing process. Well, and this is where we can go. We can add an intersectionalities piece, which is if this is happening in communities where there's this history. That's true. You know, you could be queer, you know, and and somebody saying, "Well, you can't go to mental health professional. You can't. You shouldn't talk about this because they're gonna they're gonna try to do conversion therapy on you." Right. You know this. You know the sort of the using the real 
threats that are the out there from, ins- from, in, from in ins- the industry, ins- yeah, yeah. An institutional right. environment. You know, you can't tell our secrets; they'll be used against you. You know, how many minority communities have a culture of we deal with our own issues, we deal with our own business ourselves, mm-hmm. and how many times is that derived from the fact that it's not safe that if we go outside our community right. to seek inter- intervention or support from the wider Right. Dominant culture. We will be abused we'll by be the abused. system. We'll itself. be abused. It will be bad for us, our right. family, and our community. And right. so, so it's you know whether it's it's you know it's it, we could be talking about anywhere really you know. In and so it's, many it's made incredibly complex by the reality that that perpetrators will use the mental health industry. They will get their their victims committed. They will try to commit their victims to to control them. And also to solidify their power and control, um, and and the and the fact that the industry has allowed that to happen right, right. by by not right. um, being aware right. of these things really does create right. again a, a, an impediment to people seeking healing. So so the industry itself has to clean itself I, up. I, I'm like now, now, see, this is, this the industry is, is a little this bit is, of a this, junkie this is, and it this needs is, to clean itself this up. Is, this is the impact you've had on me. I'm now thinking about, oh, we need a truth and reconciliation oh, commission for mental health and addiction around. I don't think we just around, need it for mental health and addiction. But I'm but, just saying yeah. in this context of this podcast, you know, because yeah. we could go broader, but around racism and gender oppression, Around a real reflection and critical thinking, and saying where where have right. you know uh, where have these fields really really done harm, uh, and and how is it harmful and differentially on Black, Brown, Indigenous people and poor people, and 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 really really reflect on it and say wait a second, you know um, this is the ways we've done this, and, and th- there's real differences, you know, like if you look in the U.S. And I was reading. I've been reading over the last few years the, the, all the opioid "quote unquote" epidemic, and I'm, I'm putting in quotes because I think a lot of this is is political and how it's understood and defined mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the terminology. But um, and that women's experience of addiction and men's experience of addiction is different. And one of the particular differences is that men are more likely to be introduced to drugs by their friends mm. and women are more likely to be introduced to drugs by their partner. Mm. And you've got to wonder what the context around abuse and control is there, right. Right. you know, because now then we're, you know, talking about, do I want to get you hooked? So you're dependent. Was I your drug dealer? Was this tied to mm-hmm. pimping you out at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just sort of that we, we need that real conversation about these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we often talk in very broad strokes like we do about trauma, mm-hmm. you know, without uh, identifying the source of the trauma. That's a whole other thing. I can talk about that in a minute. But it's, yeah, it's I was going to I, I was actually going to say we should we should actually talk about how trauma informed is not domestic violence informed. Right. In the mental health context, it's not. Um, and, and everybody sort of toots on the trauma informed horn. And I love it. I love I know a lot of really good mental health practitioners who are trauma informed, but they're not domestic violence informed. And their documentation is still very, very focused on the survivor. It does not contextualize the the situations under which the behaviors of the perpetrator under which this arose. And it does not protect that survivor by also mapping out their protective capacity because it doesn't matter if you have an addiction or a mental health disorder if you remove somebody from that active perpetration and you get them assistance right if they're no longer being perpetrated against if you make sure that you're focusing on the perpetrator and holding them accountable so that the survivor is over here and can heal then a lot of times you'll see people make a tremendous amount of progress in those mental health and addiction areas but If it's done, disconnected from that environment, you have ongoing anxiety, stress, and perpetration happening, which is often even more damaging because it's not being acknowledged or seen by professionals who, in in the mind of a survivor who's not a professional, one should be able to draw those lines of correlation between the harm and the environment that you're living in 
and the fact right. that you have these struggles that arise. You know, it, it, we, we really are, we're doing, inst- we are institutionally violent towards survivors. Well, and I think, <laughs> you know, one of the ways you can operationalize this is, is to think about where and when as a, as a professional in the addiction field or the mental health field, you're, you're trying to identify past or current patterns of coercive control that have impacted this person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and particularly, are you naming them as that? Are you giving people the language to understand it as that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and are you also looking for, like I said earlier, are you looking for this, you know, interference with their, with the current environment? I think, and what I want to say is that trauma informed work, um, excuse me, <clears throat> you know, is, you know, the, when you talk about it, safety will be centered in the language mm-hmm. of, of trauma informed mm-hmm. and will be identified as a critical part of being trauma informed. I think the issue often comes in how it, it's operationalized. Right. Or not in the way we practice, mm-hmm. you know, and and really that we we have to look at how we're defining safety. I think course of control really gives us a really good view of this, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I think a lot of times, um, mental health practitioners. I work with some really world class mental health pra- health practitioners who are dealing with domestic violence and kids. And they were, weren't willing, it was fascinating, they weren't willing to work with kids uh, and, and, and their mothers when they were still with the person abusing. Mm-hmm. But the line they draw was that, that they could work with them after they were separated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with some sort of notion that, that the abuse had stopped. Now, I, I get right, that there, there, right, there are right. things that are really can be different when there's physical dif- distant and separate households but but it, it we have to think more that those things is on a continuum we have to think about the tactics actually may be escalating post-separation we need to be thinking about the kids may now have unsupervised contact with that person right, right. um and that and that so our, our our view of this really has to include a clear identification it can't be diagnosis and symptoms, you know, trauma treatment, you know, TFCBT, trauma, trauma informed, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, it's very, mm-hmm. that's like, the, we talk about things like that, which is a great kind of modality. I don't, I don't have a problem with the modality at all. But the idea is when you do that, and you sort of just look through the trauma and the clinical and the symptom lens, you often miss the diversity of sources of trauma Mm-hmm. And that those things matter. You know, again, if you're talking about intergenerational trauma from racism, mm-hmm. you know, or the trauma that comes from, you know, being, the, you know, in Australia, the stolen generation, you know, where kids are removed or, or uh, and put with white families. And then the disconnection <clears throat> that comes from their cultural identity and the abuse that happens, you know, and then the you know, disconnection from family. I mean, just the, the layers of that, mm-hmm. you know, to treat that similarly or talk about in the same bucket as somebody who lived through an earthquake or a right. migration, a violent or migration experience accident. or a car accident or mm-hmm. or had childhood abuse in a, in a, in a family that was uh, of a particular kind. All those things are, are have very different dynamics around them and different meaning to those people. And I, I'm not saying that we... That there aren't tons of practitioners who actually that aren't sensitive to this, but I think our conversations at the macro level really don't do justice when we just talk in these broad strokes around we need to be trauma informed because it really wipes right. out again racism, right. structural forms of abuse, oppression, and it's often talking about things that happened in the past versus things that are going that on are now. Ongoing. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think that you know our human tendency is we want to fix problems. And, and if we feel like somebody's still living in abuse, we feel like we can't fix their problems. But the reality is, is that one of the most, so I got a beef with the mental health community because I put myself in counseling at the age of 17 after I left a cult and experienced a lot of really bad counselors, FYI, and some really good counselors. But what I found was particularly when I was living in coercively controlling relationship and I was going to 
couples counseling, that those counselors are not willing to look at behavioral behaviors and call them abuse. The mental health community has to get more comfortable with looking at behaviors and saying, that's coercive control. You're being abused, particularly in a marriage and family context, particularly when that person is trying to figure out how to leave safely. And in fact, I believe that it is a a huge injustice that's been happening, that diagnosticians are unwilling to behaviorally assess and say to people who are coming to them for assistance, I, I'm here to support you by acknowledging that you're being abused, that this is going to be complex, and I'm going to keep acknowledging to you that these behaviors you're experiencing are harmful and destructive. And then here are resources for you to figure out how to safely manage or leave or whatever it is that has to happen. But if mental health practitioners were better at looking at perpetrators and saying, you are being abusive, here are the behaviors, you're willing to engage in actions which harm your family and which they tell you is harming them and you feel entitled to do it because of your trauma, your past, your religion, your deeply held beliefs, your sense of what the family structure should be like, whatever it is. But if you intend to live happily with other people and they tell you that that you are harming them by your behaviors, then you need to stop. And if we did that as a culture, if pastors did that, if mental health practitioners did that, if school counselors did that, if somebody looked people in the eye and said, the behaviors you're engaging in are harmful to your family and you need to stop and let me help you figure out a way to do that, then I think that we would have a much better response from the mental health community towards victim survivors with less room for other systems to use their diagnoses to harm survivors, because it will still be very focused on the person who's choosing to engage in those harmful behaviors. But I never once, not once, had any mental health practitioner look at me or in my relationship and say, you're being abused. You're being coercively controlled. It's harming you. And the choices that that this person is making don't seem to be getting better. They feel entitled to do so. So let's talk about your, your, your choices, how you can take care of yourself, how you can, how you can have a stable environment in order for you to, to start to heal, to let be less anxious, to be less fearful. Nobody did that. And I'm sorry that nobody did that. I mean, I think this is this is um, where we want to go. And I think what you described there at the end happens, can happen in really good men's behavior change programs, but not right. in the wider field. But, or and, not but, and I want to name some of the barriers. And this may be the way we wrap up today. You right. know, some of the barriers to what you're saying, because you're given that very straight, clear sense of this is what would be ideal from a survivor's point of view. This right. is what we need. This is what I would have needed. Name the behaviors. You know, from the mental health (laughs) professionals. I didn't get that from them. Right. And what I want to say is, you know, as you're listening to you and and, and, and 110% support, I'm thinking about what barriers we need to unwind. And here are a few in my mind. One is that you still can go through mental health and addiction training in a lot of places, Mm -hmm. if not the majority of places, without a mandated course or set of courses on family violence. Mm-hmm. Even marriage and family therapy, at least a few years ago. And I think that's really, I think we need to all sit with that that kind of statement. Right. That, that again, that, that the mental health and addiction fields don't. And, 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 and one of the good things about how it's not framed is, <laughs> is that, you know, we don't have that as a diagnosis in, in the, in, you know, mental health. Perpetration of family violence shouldn't be, and isn't a mental health diagnosis. So I think people need to wrap their minds around that as well. Mm-hmm. But I think you need to prepare and train people and, and, and prep them for them. But mm-hmm. the truth is, 
we actually don't train people in marriage and family therapy and addiction in two big subject areas, violence and sex. That's a whole other conversation, <laughs> but it's really important to see that right. gap. So that's one right. thing. Second thing is that, um, as I've said in other settings, that we're not training a lot of our professionals to work with males. Right. And and so I've been hearing recently from different settings as we're, we're moving more into this area of, of, of training mental health addiction professionals that fear of for their own physical safety, mm-hmm. for the safety of their clients, mm-hmm. but also fear of, of lawsuits mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being hauled into court, particularly in the context of a family court, mm-hmm. is one of the reasons they don't be as direct right. as you're suggesting, and I agree that they should be. Right. And so we have to think about the systems that really support that directness in documentation and assessment in engagement and and both that's that's the skills that's the knowledge that's mm-hmm. the the motivation understanding you know how you're failing clients if you don't do that but then all the bits and pieces of safety around that and support and if you're working a lot of people working solo mm-hmm. but a lot of people working in organizations and each of their needs are different if you're a solo practitioner you may feel very vulnerable physically you know and and you may not feel like you've got the resources or the energy or the way to deal with it but if you're part of an organization, that's a whole other thing. Will you be supported? Will you be backed up if you start getting harassment or complaints? I just, I'm, I'm still, I shouldn't be stunned, but I'm just still stunned that the court relies on mental health diagnosticians and addiction programs uh, to, you know, a lot of compliance issues in family court hinge on that and those experts. So those experts know that their their stuff is being used in these family court contexts and in other contexts as well. And the fact that they are not trained, I think they're practicing outside of their scope of practice. Quite think, frankly. Right. And I think that's a question we need to ask about <laughs> about about, you know, legal professionals and we and others really about what's the level of training, what right. kind of training. But then when judges or magistrates order people into services. Right. They have the ability to say we we this kind of service, even if it doesn't exist, and this is where leadership can come from the judiciary or, right. or government to say, this is the kind of service we're going to purchase. And right. we will purchase not just trauma informed, but domestic violence informed services, because mm-hmm. that is what we think the standard should be around this. But I think when you look at these barriers for doing what you're saying, it's it's training and education. Right. But that's not enough. It's about procedures for screening and assessing and understanding how you do that. And do you meet with people separately every mm-hmm, time? Mm-hmm. Um, do you ask questions about course of control? You know, if you're dealing with somebody who's, who has an addiction or mental health issue and, and then, you know, safety issues. And I think those are, those are some of the key things we need to right. consider. And now we're not even talking, and this may be a subject for another podcast about mental health and addiction fields work with perpetrators could really, while we've been, framing the issue mm-hmm. around a perpetrator pattern. We've been mostly talking about how those systems are not doing well by survivors today. Right. And you know, I, I feel like one of the things that needs to be demystified is working with perpetrators. And, you know, one of the beefs I have with the way that we communicate about domestic violence is advocacy porn is what I call it. Women with bruised and broken faces and there's a shadow of a a man with his fist balled up. It's it, it needs to stop people. Right. And, and perpetrators, for the most part, there's a, there's a certain percentage of perpetrators who are truly monsters. And I have encountered them and lived with them in my childhood. People who had, who had been in jail for horrible things, and I saw horrible things from them. I would be afraid of that human being, absolutely. But most people who are choosing to abuse their family have done so because they feel entitled and the culture is supporting it. Their pastors, their religious leaders are supporting those narratives. Um, the predominant culture is supporting those narratives of the entitlement of that person to control and harm their family. And that's actually, if we start to, to really focus on behaviors collectively, right? All of the people around right. this family, right. if everybody who deemed themselves a professional 
and was taking money from families to try to help their mental health, learned how to do it in a domestic violence informed way, I think that a large percentage of people who are choosing to abuse their family would stop because they don't like to be held accountable and they don't like to feel shame and they don't like to feel like a bad person. It's about consequences. Um, and, and, but it's and, also and, about self-perception. But, but I'm saying consequences internal and external. Right. I mean, I think when you when you do what you're describing, you raise the the sense of internal consequence in addition to right. possibly external consequence, not arrest, but but to most community. And most people want to feel like they're a responsible right. Right. parent. Right. Um, that they're providing and, and and giving their kids what they need. Right. And that image, that outward right. image needs to be shattered a little, a little bit in those professional spaces where we hold behaviors accountable. In, in a constructive way. In so a constructive I, way. I, I want to come back. I want to end with one. Let's lay, go back to survivors. Maybe this actually we'll talk about perpetrators as well. Um, but I want to. I think we need to do another episode on on just perpetrators and, and intersections. Mm-hmm. You know, I think more in depth. Because I think also there's whole questions about um, um, how do you integrate sort of cultural trauma with mm-hmm. the people who are perpetrating, but mm-hmm. but I'm actually when I kind of you've been reading trauma trails. Yes, yes. And I'm just wondering if you know Judy Atkinson yep. is that yep. you know, which is you've been really enjoying for a while. I would say I'm okay. on a journey. Okay, sorry, enjoying I'm is on not a the, journey. <laughs> enjoying is not the no. En- I, I, is, is, I, is, I I am enjoying it, but it I've taken it's almost been two months now. I'm in the middle of the book, and I use it daily, almost like a meditation. And it really is a journey. So I'm just wondering if if we can take five minutes here before we wrap up for you to talk a little bit about what you've been getting from reading her book and just a little bit of background of what it is for people who don't know what it is. But I think it has a lot to inform this conversation about intersections. Well, Judy Atkinson is a mental health professional, but she's Aboriginal as well. And she's using an Aboriginal framework um, in order to help people through this healing process. And she, she uses the Aboriginal principle of Dadiri, um, which is deep listening. Um, you know, we know through the truth and reconciliation, um, uh, committees that we've seen in Rwanda and South Africa and other places that one of the, the biggest things for people who have experienced violence is that, that that violence and the harm that it did needs to be acknowledged by the wide, wider culture, by, by, by people around us, by the institutions that inflicted that harm as well, that participated in that, and that continue to participate in it. And that that, that acknowledgement is really just the first step on a journey of people sharing their stories um, and reconnecting with themselves and with their cultures around them, um, with their families, with their kin, with the land that they came from. And I really, truly, you know, I felt like, (laughs) I mean, I think I read the page where she gave a definition to Dadiri for three days because, and the first time I read it, I cried. I just wept because it felt like it gave a name to something that is deeply inside of me. I can't say it's deeply inside of us, but is deeply inside of me. And that is that, you know, I experienced something similar. I was stripped from my cultural context. Um, I lived in a communal setting and we were unable to have or even know about our extended family. I didn't even know about my paternity. Um, And I had a very rich cultural history behind my father's family you know, that's um, Hispanic and, and Portuguese. And I lost all of that context. And it created um, a real sense of, of, of trauma. And there was forced poverty. We, we didn't have to be poor. It was enforced. And it was real poverty. I mean, we were hungry at times, and we didn't have electricity and running water at times. Um, so as she was telling the stories of the journey of Aboriginal people being stripped of their context, being enforced poverty. You know, I, I really felt a tremendous amount of empathy and resonance. And, and we have to get to a point where collectively, culturally, 
we can acknowledge the damage that we've done and listen to people's stories. It's not just about the acknowledging. It's listening to the stories of those who have survived that violence and then collaborating with each other for healing. That means action. That means that means informed doing. Right. Not just casting about for solutions, but having those stories and that ex, you know those experiences teach us and inform us about a better way to respond, a better way to do, a better way to act. Um, and and you know it seems so simple because it just that to me is organic. That's an organic process that makes sense. I don't believe that we can heal as cultures until we start to deeply listen to survivors and how they're being harmed. And we have to reattach our practices, the way that we behave, the things that we do back to their needs and to the way that it, it supports them. And really, truly, I think that in the end, that those services that claim that they're helping survivors, if the preponderance of their actions aren't helping survivors, they should lose funding because they're doing us damage. They're continuing this cycle of violence. And I think particularly about the response in Australia to the course of control laws being raised and the real concerns that Aboriginal women are arrested at high rates and women who experience violence are arrested at high rates and, and, and convicted, prosecuted for crimes. And to me, it's insanity to think that we can make these laws and these policies and not look at the institutions and the things that they are doing. For example, the police and the retention of domestic violence perpetrators. You can't separate our response out from the racism and the anti-women attitudes that exists and the, and the perpetration within those institutions that are supposed to be assisting us. Right. We need a holistic overhaul. Right. And then this is why you, you, you start saying, you know, fix systems, not survivors. Yeah. And, and I really, I really like the deep listening piece and and I'm thinking about as you're talking just the deep listening to people who have been harmed whether it's in the context of 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 individual relationship or family or or cultural abuse for generations Mm -hmm. you know is is uh the feelings being able to hear and sit with hearing somebody's anger yes and rage and and despair and grief and yeah. loss which those harms can't be undone no can't go back in time to make that not have happened yeah but you can listen and hear somebody's pain and i was talking to somebody somebody shared with me about working with aboriginal clients and was talking about just their he, he was thinking about their anger and the depression that was mm-hmm. just so present for so many of them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it, you know, it, it was just there. And, and so anyway, so I just want to bring in, because I think it's, it's really important in this context of, if we're talking about intersections of domestic violence, mental health and addiction, that we are, again, widening out the scope of the conversation away from this very Western Pathology, mm. diagnosis, individualizing, isolated, it's isolated. Not well, and it, you know, and I keep wanting to wrap us <laughs> up, but I keep thinking about a, a fatality re- review report out of New Zealand a number of years ago, mm. where named that the that the term that the phrase empowerment is now used in this very individualized right. way. But the, the genesis of the term was about collective, about groups. It, it's it's actually, and, and so, I think it's violence. I think, I think it's it's violence yeah. to pressurize the individual and make them responsible. Right. And totally not see how everything around them is supporting this, this perpetration and this narrative. Write down, write down 
to the practices of businesses that fire survivors when their perpetrator is stalking them, That's which right. includes, by the way, mental health and domestic violence organizations. Well, they'll say it's because of the safety of their staff. Or that, you know, right. That, right. But, so, you know, we, right. we've got to get better. Okay. So we, <laughs> we, we obviously have a lot to say about this, and hopefully it's been interesting to you. I'm I, loving this conversation. and. It's been a couple of weeks in the making. We keep saying we we, to- we 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 have so much work that we've been doing that we were not able to record a podcast for a while, and and we apologize for the gap. But we're working tremendously hard. Over so here. you've been listening to Partner with a Survivor, and today's conversation is about intersections, and we will be doing more in the future. And we really welcome your questions and comments and your engagement. You know, with this mm. with this issue, it's a huge one. Yeah, and would encourage you if if your you know relevant white papers on our website include one on worker safety, mm-hmm. one on perpetrators, um, uh, uh, intervention program certificates are dangerous about sort of measuring change. Mm-hmm. There's another one on how perpetrators manipulate systems, and so it's you know so so not only you know if you're you're listening you know you're here with us. Uh, in the audio world, um, you can go to our website, safetyintheotherinstitute.com and get free resources there. Um, and, um, and check out our events coming up. And I'll, you know, we've got events going on all the time and, mm-hmm. and different things. And then also come to our virtual academy where there's, where there's lots of learning opportunities, both free and paid. And paid. And that's academy.safetyintheotherinstitute.com. And we have a, a discount code that Ruth we created. We do. It's partnered, all lowercase. It's a coupon for you. And you put it's it in there. Fifteen percent, I believe. Yes. And that applies to all the. It the does all courses, the courses. The courses yeah. there, and um, and um, please uh, follow us mm-hmm. on Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. um, YouTube, and um, and uh, please share if you this podcast wherever you're listening and subscribe to it, whatever platform you're listening to it and. Right. And uh, and fix systems, not survivors. Fix systems, not survivors. Okay. And we're out. And we're out.